our uh, time this morning again, I want to ask you to, to reflect on, on three particular names. Uh, some of them may be familiar to you, at least one of them I'm, I'm pretty certain is not familiar to you. Uh, but there are three men, uh, their names are Joshua Harris, Marty Sampson, and Gary Stats. Now, uh, the first name, Joshua Harris, uh, there's probably a number of people here at Living Water who are familiar with Joshua Harris. In 1997, when Joshua was 23 years old, uh, he wrote a best-selling Christian book that was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And in it, uh, Joshua outlined a, a gospel-centered approach to dating, which really helped to shape the entire purity culture of the late 90s and early 2000s, and really shaped uh, the dating of a number of young Christians. And since that time, uh, he went on to publish a, a, another group of books, several books, and in 2004, at the age of 30 years old, he became the lead pastor of a megachurch that's located in Gaithersburg, Maryland. It's a position that he held till 2015. Uh, but recently, uh, Joshua found himself uh, in the news. And what put him in the news was Joshua announced uh, online through social media that he was divorcing his wife and that he had renounced his Christian faith. Uh, and after growing up in a, in a Christian home, uh, after writing books that had influenced uh, hundreds of thousands of Christians around the world after pastoring a, a thriving Christian church, after being married to a, a godly woman, having godly children, and after proclaiming the gospel for, for well over two decades, something significant, something no doubt painful, something that, that Joshua probably is the only one who knows, or perhaps some of his closest family members, something must have happened to cause Joshua to lose his faith in Jesus Christ and reject the gospel. Now, lesser known, uh, but still influential, is a, a singer-songwriter by the name of Marty Sampson. Uh, since the 1990s, uh, Marty has been a, a musician and a worship leader uh, with the, the Hillsong United Worship Team based out of Australia. And while you might not know his name, uh, you may know one of his songs. We sing it here at Living Water. It's called, Oh, Praise the Name. I'll, I'll read you the chorus. I'm not going to try to sing it because that would not be a pretty sight. But it goes something like this. Oh, praise the name of our Lord, our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, our God. Now, last month, the man who wrote those words, the man who led thousands of people in worship throughout the world for the last 20 years said this, I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world, it's crazy. And while he hasn't completely renounced his faith, Marty confesses that his faith is on incredibly shaky ground. So here we have it. We have two very high-profile young Christian leaders who came uh, to prominence in, in, the, in their early 20s. One has denounced 
is faith outright. The other faith is on incredibly shaky grounds. That, brothers and sisters, is not very encouraging. But now let's contrast that with a, a man that I'm quite certain that, that there's not a single person in this room who you have ever heard of him. His name is Dr. Gary Statz. Uh, Dr. Statz is in his mid-70s. He was my Hebrew professor in seminary. He has five post-secondary degrees. Two of those degrees are doctorates, one from Dallas Theological Seminary and the other one from New York University. He reads and speaks Hebrew better than you and I read and speak English. He has been, and this is not, not an exaggeration at all, Dr. Statz has memorized every single Messianic text in the Hebrew Bible. He's perhaps the most brilliant, yet the most humble, genuine, and loving Christ follower that I know. And he has done some things that I believe are absolutely remarkable. When we were in seminary, uh, he came to our class one day, he just moved to, to the area, and he said, you know, I have some spare time, so I, I thought that I, I would do some pastoring. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, this guy's absolutely brilliant. What church in uh, the town of Finley, Ohio, a uh, town of about 35,000 people, and the county, Hancock County, had about 60,000 people. I'm like, there's lots of churches that would want uh, Dr. Stats to, to be on their staff. And so he's probably going to go to one of the, the larger churches in town. Dr. Stats says, you know what I really want to do? So I want to find a little country church that needs a pastor. And I'm going to go and love Jesus on them. And so he goes and he puts his application in this little country church made up of about probably 35, 40, 50 people. The, the pulpit committee calls them uh, calls him in front of them to, to interview them. And one of the questions they ask is that, Dr. Stats, what, what translation in the Bible do you like to preach out? You know, they're thinking I was going to say maybe the King James or the New International Version or the English Standard Version. And Dr. Stats uh, just smiles at them and, and he says, you know, I, I just kind of like, you know, reading from the Hebrew Bible and just kind of translating it as I go. And the search team goes, Oh, that works perfectly for us. <laughs> but here is this guy who is incredibly brilliant. And all he wants to do is minister to this little rural church of people to help them fall in love with Jesus. Now, while we were in, in, in seminary, uh, our daughter Nicole was, was very, very young. She was, uh, oh my goodness, she was probably six months old or so when we went to seminary. Uh, in the Second year of seminary, right uh, before my finals kicked off, uh, Nicole was probably around two or so then, I guess, and uh, she had seizures. And uh, we went to the emergency room. The emergency room uh, admitted us into the hospital. It was during my finals week, which was relatively inconvenient. And uh, so we're uh, in, the, in the hospital. Our, our pastor stops by. He visits us for a little while. And uh, nobody else comes to visit us. Except this man who I spend three hours a week with in his Hebrew class, Dr. Stats. He comes and he spends time with us and he prays for us and he's just so incredibly kind and so incredibly gentle and so incredibly wonderful. And best of all, uh, I just got decimated on my Hebrew uh, final that week and, and he didn't fail me, which is something I definitely appreciate. <laughs> and if you would ask him, you know, Dr. Stats, what is your passion? 
This is what he would tell you. He would say, all that I want to do is to help people grow in their knowledge of the Bible and in their devotion to Jesus Christ and pass on to others what they have learned. So I ask you, what is the difference between Joshua Harris and Marty Sampson, who for the last 20 years have been celebrated in popular Christian culture, and Dr. Stacks, who's ministered for 50 years in relative obscurity? And the answer is faithfulness. Dr. Stacks has demonstrated faithfulness. And this is what faithfulness is. Faithfulness is a commitment to the truth that manifests itself in a continued obedience and fidelity over the long haul. For a time, Joshua and Marty were committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But somewhere along the way, that commitment faded. And, and while they demonstrated faith for a time, they were not ultimately faithful because they have abandoned or are in the process of abandoning their faith. Yet Dr. Stats has stood the test of time and relative obscurity, not seen by many, but ultimately seen by God. And faithfulness is, is a fruit of God's Spirit. It, it is the outworking of God's Spirit working inside of us. Uh, when someone is faithful, they are a person of integrity. Now, I have an undergraduate degree uh, in computer science and, and mathematics. And one of the things that, that you learn when you're in college and you're studying math is that uh, the term integer uh, is what you use to actually find the term integrity. An integer is a, is a whole number. It's two, five, seven, something like that. It's not a fraction like a third or a quarter. So when someone has integrity, it means that they're a whole person, that their life is, is not divided. In other words, who they are in public is the exact same person as who they are in private. Now, our culture struggles with that concept because our culture, and many of us, unfortunately, have bought into the lie that our public lives and our private lives are separate. Our culture believes that what we do in private doesn't have to impact what we do in public. So you can be a, a politician, who runs a city, or a county, or a state, or a nation, and we can cheat on our spouse, or be a lousy parent to our kids, or lie on our taxes, and somehow not have that at all impact the way that we govern. We can be a, a business owner, or a school teacher, or a pastor who drinks a little too much, dabbles in drugs a little bit, occasionally uh, engages in a little adult entertainment, and somehow not have any of that affect the way that we run our business, or teach our kids, or shepherd our flock. And that is exactly what our culture believes. But the fact of the matter is, even
even though we may have fallen into that lie, deep down inside of us, everyone knows that's a lie. Every one of us understands that what we do in private will ultimately affect our public lives. Because what we do in private absolutely impacts what we do in the public. Because when we are not integrated, when we are not living a whole life, when we try to separate our public life from our private life, something actually happens. Things begin to disintegrate. And we see that all the time in, in, in leaders in government and business. Their private life, which is supposed to be their own business, ends up radically impacting their public life in such a way that it hurts them, it hurts their family, and tragically, it hurts those they're leading. And over the last several months, as we have uh, worked our way through the life of, of Jacob and his family members, we have seen the negative impact that occurs with people whose lives are not marked by faithfulness. We've seen Jacob manipulate his brother Esau into forfeiting his birthright and then tricking his father into giving him Esau's blessing. We have witnessed Jacob's father-in-law Laban deceive his son-in-law Jacob into marrying his first daughter rather than his second daughter who Jacob thought he was going to marry. We've observed Esau reject the faith of his father and mother, disobey direct commands from God, and, and, and marry women who were of a, a different faith, who were, who were idol worshipers and pagan worshipers. We read about Jacob's son Simeon and Levi killing all the men of the city because the leading son of the city defiled their sister Dinah. You see, Jacob and his family members, they're a case study in unfaithfulness. They wavered in their commitment to the truth, and as such, they were unable to live lives of continued obedience and fidelity over the long haul. But there is one individual, one son of Jacob, who is faithful, who lives a faithful life, whose life is integrated, and his name is Joseph. And for the balance of our study of Genesis, which is, I think, the next 13 or 14 chapters, which is going to equate to about the next five months, we're going to be amazed at how Joseph lives a life of faithfulness in the midst of extraordinary struggles. <laughs> so let's get started. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis is really easy to find. Means the beginnings, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Don't hesitate to, to get up and get one. If you don't own a Bible, we want you to take it with you as our gift. The only thing that we ask is you actually read the bad boy. Don't put it on a shelf and let it gather dust. It won't do anything to you. But if you begin to read it, it is the power of God which transforms lives. It will transform your life. Uh, Genesis 37, 1 through 4, if you're able to stand, would you please do so in honor of God's word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. 
He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that would be Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, if there is one individual in the entirety of the Old Testament who reflects the life of Jesus, it's Joseph. Countless commentators of the Old Testament have uh, detailed the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, and perhaps the, the great 17th century French uh, mathematician and theologian by the name of Blaise Pascal put it best when he wrote these words. Christ is prefigured by Joseph. Innocent, beloved of his father, sent by his father to see his brothers, is sold for 20 pieces of silver. Through this he becomes their Lord, their Savior, Savior of strangers, and Savior of the known world. None of this would have happened but for his brother's plot to destroy him, the sale, and the rejection of him. In prison, Joseph, innocent between two criminals. Jesus on the cross between two thieves. Both Joseph and Jesus prophesied the salvation of the one and the death of the other, when to all appearances they are both alike. Christ saves the elect and damns the reprobate for the very same crime. Joseph only prophesies. Jesus acts. Joseph asks the man who will be saved to remember him when he comes in glory. And the man Jesus saved asks to be remembered when he comes into his kingdom. You see, Joseph is a picture of Jesus and an example to you and I. His life demonstrates absolute faithfulness to God under all situations, both pleasant and painful. And in these four verses, we learn three aspects of faithfulness that show us how we should live as integrated people in a disintegrated society. Let me give those to you uh, up front right away, and then we'll briefly work our way through them. The first is this. The, the source of faithfulness is God's calling and love. The outwork of faithfulness is our obedience, and the cost of faithfulness is the rejection by others. The source of faithfulness is God's calling and love. The outworking of faithfulness is our obedience. The cost of faithfulness is the rejection by others. Let's look at the first one. Our passage starts off with a very simple statement in verse 2. It says this, These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flocks with his brothers. Now, if you remember back to the last chapter, chapter 36, a, a chapter that, that I spent some time on and that Mike Bongo uh, preached the second week on, you'll remember that chapter 36 starts off this way. These are the generations of Esau. Chapter 37 starts off, these are the generations of Jacob. Chapter 36, these are the generations of Esau. So we're looking at the generations of two brothers here. 
And then chapter 36 goes on for 43 verses talking about the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. And we're told that they're, they're powerful kings and, and they are great rulers and that, that they're, they're mighty men. These would be the kind of people that our world lines up to follow. So if you just pulled out chapter 36 all by itself and you read this thing, everybody in the world would be like, yeah, we need to follow these guys. These are, these are great, powerful men. But they weren't the people who God would choose to elevate or play a prominent role in the lineage of Jesus. Now, God chooses someone else. He chooses a 17-year-old son of Jacob named Joseph, who was pasturing his family flocks with his brothers. Now, if you think about everything that we've learned over the last five months or so as we've been working our way through the study about what went on in Jacob's life, what you need to remember is all of those things that happened to Jacob, his son Joseph witnessed. Joseph grew up in a family where his father had two wives and two mistresses. Now, I think about that for a moment. I struggle to be a faithful, loving husband to one woman. It's hard. I mean, to really love Kathy the way that I'm supposed to love her, to really to, to die to myself and, and be willing to sacrifice for her is hard. Can you imagine trying to do that with two women and two mistresses? Who can pull that off? All right, but, but Joseph, he witnesses this. He witnesses this is what his dad is doing. He would be the youngest of his ten brothers and his one sister who were born during the time that, that his family lived with his grandfather Laban in Padan Aram. And Joseph would have witnessed the strife between his granddad and his dad. Joseph would have heard the stories about how his granddad lied to his dad about who Jacob was actually going to marry. All of those things, he would have, he would have learned all of those things. He, he would have saw him, how his dad had to get the whole family together and sneak out in the middle of the night to escape from Grandpa. As a young boy, he would have known the fear of hearing the news that his uncle Esau, who had vowed to kill his father, was approaching the clan with an army. And then he would have been there when his dad put his mom and him in line to ultimately go meet Esau, not knowing what was about to happen. He would listen as his father explained this, this wrestling match that he had with an angel. He would see his father limping and trying to figure out what all of this meant. Jacob would have learned firsthand about the rape of his sister Dinah and how his brothers Simeon and Levi killed her rapist and all the rapist countrymen. He would have experienced the, the shame that comes from when his oldest brother Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine Bilhah. 
He would see his father order the, the destruction of, of the foreign gods that their families had, had brought along with them, and then watch his dad ultimately build altars to God. Joseph would grieve over his mom who dies while giving birth to his little brother. And then finally, he would weep over the passing of his grandfather, Isaac. And all that would happen in the first 17 years of his life. Joseph had every reason to be messed up, every reason to move into adulthood damaged and broken, every reason to turn his back on God. And some of us in this room right now know that pain. Because in our early years growing up, we had all kinds of horrific things happen to us. Things that should have never, ever happened to us. People did things to us that they should have never, ever done. And in turn, we did things to people that we should never have done. Some of us childhoods were filled with pain and disappointment and rejection and abuse. By all accounts, our lives should have been wrecked and God should have cast us aside. What he did for us, what he did for Joseph. He chose us out of our pain and our suffering. Look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, it would be very easy to look at this as favoritism on the part of Jacob towards his son Joseph. It would be easy to be think that, that Jacob is basically doing the same thing to his kids that his father Isaac and his mother Rebekah did to he and his brother Esau. You remember how it went, Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. But I don't believe that's what's happening here. Allow me to explain it. Jacob's oldest son was Reuben. He was born to Jacob's first wife. And because he was the oldest, Reuben uh, owned the birthright, and he held the prominent position in the family. But, but Reuben, he forfeits that birthright because he sinfully engages in sexual relations with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine, the servant of Jacob's second wife, Rachel. You know, talk about a messed up family. That's what's going on in this family. And because Reuben had forfeited his birthright, this allows Jacob to choose another son to be his heir. And he chooses Joseph, the son he loved, the son of his old age, that the Bible tells us, the firstborn son of his beloved wife, Rachel. And folks, that's where faithfulness ultimately begins. Faithfulness begins in the knowledge that you and I have been chosen by God, not because of anything that we have done or haven't done, but simply because of the love of the Father. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not because you chose God. It's because God chose you. Look closely at verse 4. As Christians, God has chosen us, you and me, what? Before the foundations of the world. Think about that for a moment. Before God created anything, before any of that stuff that's recorded in the first 12 chapters of Genesis, before anything existed, God determined that you and I would be his children. He was thinking about you and I before he was thinking about the Milky Way galaxy, before he was thinking about trees and shrubs and aardvarks and alligators. He was thinking about you, his child. Not because of anything special in us, but rather because of his love. Now, why did he do that? I mean, think about it. After all, what do you and I really bring to table? I mean, what do we present to God that is really wonderful? When I think about myself, I know what I present to God. Every single day, I present to God sin, fallenness, foolishness, stupidity. That's the thing that I bring to the table. Even the good stuff that I do, all of it is ultimately not motivated in doing good for other people. Most of the time, if I'm really honest, the reason I'm being a good guy is because what that goodness actually manifests itself to me. I, I want to study and, and, and preach well, why? To glorify God, hopefully. But I got to tell you, kind of deep down inside, when I'm really honest with you, it's because I want people to think well of me. When you open the door for the little old lady, or you help someone cross the street, or you change the tire for someone, or, or whatever nice deed that you and I do, most of the time, the underlying reason that we're doing those things is because we want to feel good about ourselves. So even the good stuff that we do is ultimately tinged in sin because we do it for our benefit, for our good, for our affirmation. And despite that, in verse 4, we're told God chose us in love. In love, God predetermined that he would adopt us into his family. God chose you and me simply out of love. That is amazing. That is astounding. That is beautiful. That ultimately should be life-changing. And love is exactly why Joseph chose, or Jacob chose Joseph. And it is that love, God choosing of you and me simply because he wanted to, that is the source of our faith. 
You see, God didn't choose us because of our faith. Rather, our faith flows because God has ultimately chose us. And when we come to fully understand that, when we come to understand that our faith isn't something that finds its source in us, but rather our faith finds its source in God's love, then we're prepared to begin to live a life that will manifest itself in faithfulness. Faith that stands the test of time. And that brings us to the second point. The outworking of faith is our obedience. The end of verse 3 in Genesis 37, we read these words. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his brothers, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Now, when we read this, a, a robe of many colors, our minds instantaneously go back to Sunday school, vacation Bible school, where you got these flannel graphs and these little books that show, you know, Jacob wearing this uh, rainbow cloak, basically. That's the thing that we, our, our mind goes to, or, or perhaps we're reminded of uh, Donnie Osmond. Uh, some of you know that in uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know, I hated Donnie Osmond, by the way. <laughs> Let me tell you why. <laughs> Complete aside here, but you need to know this. Uh, I, I went to a Mountain View Elementary School. So, some of the kids here, some of the parents probably have kids that go to Mountain View Elementary. It's part of the Central Dolphin School District. And, and when I was in fourth grade, there was a beautiful young girl there by the name of Barb Utina, who happens to still live uh, in our community. Her name is now Barb Lake. Some, some of you may actually know Barb. You can tell her that she was in my sermon this week. All right, well, Barb was beautiful. And I was in fourth grade. Why are fourth graders into girls? I don't know. I was probably mistreated by my parents or something like that. <laughs> but anyhow, the problem was, Barb was in love with Donnie Osmond. <laughs> so I couldn't stand Donnie Osmond. So when I was writing this thing, that's the first thing that flashed into my mind. Jacob in the amazing Technicolor dream coat was Donnie Osmond in that colored coat. Well, folks, while the idea of the robe of many colors makes for a vivid children's story or musical, the reality was it probably wasn't a coat of many colors. There are two Hebrew words that have been put together that make up the translation here in Genesis 37 of a coat of many colors. The, the first word, the first Hebrew word is always, through scripture, translated coat, cloak, robe. So you can be pretty confident that he gave him a piece of clothing. However, the second word that is used in this uh, particular verse, the second Hebrew word, is an entirely obscure Hebrew word. It only occurs one other time in the entirety of the Old Testament. And uh, what it means in the other section is either ankles or wrists. So somewhere along the, 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 the line uh, in a translation, probably in the 1600s or something like that, someone translates this cloak of, of many colors, and it's made its way down through the ages. But the reality was, rather than being a multicolored robe, the robe probably had long sleeves that went down to the wrists, and the length of it went down to the ankles. 
Now, the typical robe of that day or the typical cloak of that day didn't have sleeves. It, it was like a, a, a cutoff, and, and it only would go down to the knees. Why? Because you had to work. And you couldn't work if the rope was super long and it had super long sleeves. So if you were a manual labor person, you had a, a normal cloak with no sleeves and it went down to your knees. But if you're the boss man, then you got the long sleeves and the long rope. And see, given this, it makes sense that Jacob appointed Joseph as a manager over his brothers which happens to explain verse 2, which says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them of their brother. So Joseph isn't a 17-year-old tattletale. That's not what he is. Rather, he's a supervisor who's got some employees who are not doing what they're supposed to do, and he's reporting to the boss. Now, any of you who have ever supervised people know that that is not pleasant. Drives you crazy when you pay people to do a job and they don't do the stinking job. And then you gotta report to your boss that, hey, Johnny Schmutzky or Sally Schmutzky is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And this is exactly what's happening here with Joseph. Joseph is in charge of these guys. These guys aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're probably giving them a hard time because what? They're the older brothers, and the little snot-nosed kid is the one who's actually running the show. And so he has to go to his father and tells him what's happening in the field. You see, the outworking of faithfulness is ultimately obedience. It's not a fun thing to do. But you're called to be obedient to the Father. And so that's what Joseph does. He proves his faithfulness by being obedient to his dad, by bringing a bad report about his brothers. And the same holds true for us. Our faithfulness is proven by our obedience. Look at 1 John 2. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked, which would be Jesus. You see, our obedience, you and I keeping the commands of God, is an outwork of our faith. Our obedience doesn't create faith, but rather our faith is demonstrated by our obedience. And when we keep God's word, it shows that we actually love God. And that's why being an integrated person is so incredibly important. Our obedience to God just doesn't show God how much we love Him, but it also shows a watching world how much we love God. 
Jesus spoke of this very thing in Matthew 10. He says this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You see, in God, there is no separation between the public and the private. There's no separation between the, the sacred and the secular. There's no separation between the church and the state. As a matter of fact, that phrase actually isn't even in the United States Constitution. That's another message for another day. You see, as Christians, we're called to live out our faith both in our private lives and in our public lives. And when we do that, God is glorified because people see God through us. And I witnessed this just the other day. Just the other day, I was in a uh, very public event with a very public figure who I personally know loves Jesus very, very much. The event was so public that there was a reporter there, that there was a, a still photographer there, uh, there was a video photographer there. And uh, this particular person, uh, this very public figure, serves in a, in a position where uh, loving and living for God is not held in great esteem. As a matter of fact, in, in this person's particular position, if you get too public with your faith, it could ultimately be a career ender. Yet rather than hiding their faith, this individual says in the front of, of, of this crowd, out in public, probably 50, 60 people or so, something like that, she says this, this is, is Mike Leonzo. He's my pastor, and I asked him if he would offer a brief prayer for us, which she asked about three seconds before she said that. <laughs> now, this person didn't have to do that. It would have been nothing to simply move forward without praying. But this person is faithful, they are integrated, and their private life and their public life are aligned. And because of that, on that day, God got glorified. See, God calls us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, which is our city, Harrisburg. He calls us to be his witnesses in Judea, which is the surrounding area, which is central Pennsylvania. He calls us to be his witnesses in Samaria, that place that is filled with all kinds of people who we don't like. I'm not going to give you an illustration for that one. And to the ends of the earth, which means, well, it means to the ends of the earth. That's where we're called to be his witnesses. And those who are faithful, they do just that. Okay, last point. The cost of faithfulness is rejection by others. Look again at verse five of Genesis 37, or verse four of Genesis 37. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. You see, being called by God, being loved by God, being obedient to God are very, very good things. They are also very, very dangerous things. 
Not everyone is impressed by those who are faithful. And that was certainly the case with Joseph's brothers. They didn't like that he was obedient to their father Jacob, nor did they like that he was loved and chosen by Jacob. Why didn't they love him? Simply because he wasn't like them. He was different. And I want you to notice something extremely important in this, in this passage, something that we are witnessing in our culture at this very moment. Not only did Joseph's brothers hate him, they couldn't speak peacefully to him. And isn't that exactly how our culture works right now? When we are different than others, many times that leads people to dislike us, and then many times to ultimately hate us. Yet it's not enough for people to dislike us, it's not enough for them to hate us, they actually take it to such an extreme that, that they can't even speak peacefully to us. You see, the ability to dialogue, the ability to discuss, the ability to disagree and still be agreeable is gone. If I don't like you, if you're different than me, if you worship differently than me, if you believe differently than me, if you're a member of a different political party or a different socioeconomic class or a different worldview, our society teaches us that we can't even talk. And this is one of the primary reasons why people live faithless lives. Because they don't want to be in conflict with other people. Who in here, who in this room wants to enter into conflict with other people? Nobody really wants that. Some of us do it because that's what we have to do. But the fact of the matter is, nobody wants to be in conflict with another person. We all want to be liked, we all want to be accepted, we all want to be approved and considered and included, and most of all, we don't want to suffer. But that is exactly what Jesus told us is going to happen if we choose to be faithful to him. This is what he says. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will so also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You see, the world hates Christians because the world ultimately hates Jesus. And if you're a Christian, the world hates you because you love Jesus, and because Jesus loves you, and because he chose you before the beginning of time to be his, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. And so when your faith is wavering, and when you're tempted to give up on Jesus, 
And when you feel like you're heading down the road of Joshua Harris or Marty Sampson, remember the words of 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see, brothers in Jesus, it's Jesus' faithfulness that ultimately secures our faithfulness. And you got to understand, it's not getting better, folks. The world's hatred towards Christians is only going to grow stronger. Your faith and my faith is going to come at a cost. And the question we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to pay the cost? Or will we ultimately turn our backs on Christ so that we might be accepted by the Lord? It's the reality. It's coming. Every single day, it's moving faster and faster and faster. There's going to come a time when, when what was just communicated here is going to cost me my freedom. There's going to come a time when you go and you speak of Christ in your office place and you can be fired and they not think about it. It's coming. There is going to be a price to be paid to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the United States of America. Like there's a price to be paid to be a follower of Jesus Christ in lots of other places in the world. And the question becomes, will you and I be faithful? And what we can remember is we can be faithful because Jesus is faithful. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this time. That we can come before you and study your word. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that your Son proves to be the great example for us of an individual who, Lord, was persecuted but did not waver, was cursed but did not curse back, loved in spite of horrific things being said to him and done to him, forgives in the midst of being crucified. God, may we look to Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he has deposited in those who have repented of their sins and received him as Lord and Savior. May we look to the Spirit for the strength to stand in the midst of the changes that are coming in this world. And may we ultimately prove to be faithful simply because you are faithful. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we prepare.